Well, once again, good morning, everybody. It's great to see all of you. For those of you who are new, my name's Chris Ward. I am one of the pastors on staff here. And for those of you who are regular attenders, I can guess what you're thinking right now. And that is, did Chris tuck in his shirt? In fact, if I had known any better, I would think Chris has an entirely new outfit on today. Is that? It is. Yeah. So this past week, thank you. Thank you. This past week, I did something that I cannot stand, and that is I went shopping, and I got a new shirt and belt and pants and shoes, and I just want to say, this may be the beginning of something new here for me, okay? I, uh, I came to Epiphany a couple of weeks ago. I realized, you know, I'm, I'm turning 36 in December, and uh, I decided I got to stop dressing like a 12-year-old, you know? It's time to step it up a little bit. Only problem is... I blew my entire budget on clothes for this entire year on this outfit right here. So I hope you like it because I'm going to be wearing this every weekend, okay? I do not know why I shared that with you. Hey, in just a second, we're going uh, to pray and open up God's Word. Before we do that, however, uh, I just want to let you know about something that's coming up very quickly here at Friends Church. Uh, a week from tomorrow, not this Monday, but next Monday, October 23rd, uh, we're going to have a, 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 an event here that we're simply calling an evening with Dr. J.P. Moreland. And Dr. J.P. Moreland, in case you don't know, is a professor at Biola University. He's a professor at Talbot School of Theology. He's actually one of the most well-known Christian philosophers around today, defenders of the faith. He's known all over the world, has written tens of books, and he's just right in our backyard. And so we thought it would be fun to have him out for an evening. And so, uh, again, on October 23rd, 7 p.m., right here in this worship center, uh, he is going to be uh, talking to us. And uh, right now he's scheduled to give a talk about... Christian uh, in, uh, exclusivity in a world of inclusivity. And what I mean by that is, you know, we live in a world of tolerance. We live in a world where people say there are many ways to heaven, there are many ways to God. And we Christians preach this message about, you know, Jesus being the only way to salvation. And so what J.P. Moreland's going to talk about is why intellectually we're able to believe that, why that's actually a very, uh, a very reasonable thing to believe. And he's going to talk about how to defend that a little bit. So this is going to be just a, a great evening. It's a little bit different than things we normally do here at Friends Church. It's going to be maybe a little bit more intellectual, but I know that there are some of you who, who really love that. And so you don't have to sign up or register or anything at all. All you have to do is show up 7 p.m. October 23rd, Monday, right here. Uh, if you do want kids care, however, if you want to drop your kids off, we are having kids care for that event. And so you do need to register for that. But otherwise, uh, I just hope uh, as many of you as possible will be able to come to that. So you all going to come? Yeah? Yeah? Okay, don't lie to me, men and women. It's not nice to lie, so you all are going to come. I want to see you there. Hey, as we get prepared to open up God's Word, let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Father God, we just thank you for this opportunity we get to gather together this morning, Father, um, to, in a special way, God, I know, I know we meet with you throughout the week, but God, there's something unique that happens when, um, when your body comes together uh, like we do here today. And so, Father, I thank you for this time of worship, and I thank you that we now get the opportunity to hear from you uh, through your word. And so, Father, I pray that this morning you would speak through me. The message that you want to get across is the message that is received, Father, that truly your Holy Spirit, who we already know is present, Father, in this room, that he would speak to me and he would speak to the hearts of everybody that's gathered here. And so we thank you for this time, and we ask this in your son's name. Amen. If you brought your Bibles, you can grab them right now and turn with me to Acts chapter 6 is where we're going to start out today. Acts chapter 6. If you've been with us over the last several weeks, you know that we've been in a series at this church called Momentum. And what we're doing in this series is we're taking a look at the early church and what it is that the early church was committed to 
that made them this incredible force for God and force for good in the world. And the commitment that we're going to look at today is a little bit of a unique commitment that they had. But before we do that, I want to lead into that with a little bit of story from my own life. Uh, about eight or nine years ago now, um, I was actually an intern here at Friends Church. Uh, I was finishing up my degree at Talbot School of Theology, and as a part of my degree program, I had to get an internship at a church, and so I ended up interning here at Friends. And uh, this is about the time, if you were here at that time, this is about the time when our global freedom ministry really started to take off our efforts in India. And as a result of that, every single summer, we still do this now, but it was a little bit different back then. Every single summer, we would send a team of people from this church, mainly actually of high school students and college students, and we would send them to India in order to minister there, in order to see what we're doing, do some missions work. And so as a part of my internship, I was asked by my bosses if I would help lead uh, this, this trip this particular summer, right before my last year of seminary, to India. And to be honest with you, initially when I was asked, I, I kind of didn't want to go. Uh, the reason why is because summer was when I didn't have classes, and so it was a relaxing time for me. And so the thought of spending two weeks in India wasn't really at the top of my list for that particular summer. Uh, but I was just a lowly intern, and they were the ones in charge, so of course I ended up going. And when I got to India, uh, it became very obvious to me that although I didn't initially want to go there, it became obvious to me that, that God wanted me there. And the reason why is because there were a number of different things that God taught me during that time in India. And there are a few lessons I learned from it, but there was nothing that was more impactful for me than what happened the very last day of that trip. So the very last day of that trip, uh, right as we were getting ready to leave, our host in India uh, came to us leaders of, of the team from America. And they said to us, you know, we, we would love it if we could have a time of prayer together with you right before you leave. And of course, we, we said that that was okay. And so right before we boarded the, the, the buses to leave for the airport, we gathered together for a time of prayer. And to be honest with you, I, I thought when they had called this prayer time, I thought that the reason they wanted to pray is because they wanted us Americans to pray for them. Uh, simply put, it's tough to be a Christian in India. Uh, the Christianity is not looked upon favorably by the government. Many of our hosts, in fact, have been pretty severely persecuted for their faith. They've been beaten. They've been literally dragged through the mud. And so I thought that they wanted to pray because this would be an opportunity for us to pray strength for them. But as we started to pray, it became very obvious to me very quickly that the reason they wanted that prayer time was not so that we could pray for them. Uh, the reason they wanted that prayer time was actually so that they could pray for us. And there were a number of different things that they ended up praying over us in that time, but there was nothing that stood out to me more than, than this one particular prayer. It was prayed by one of our hosts, a man by the name of Kumar, who has had to suffer pretty severely for his faith. And during this prayer time, he, he prayed something along the following. He, he said, God, we pray for our American brothers and sisters because they do not have to undergo persecution for their faith, because they do not have to undergo suffering for their faith. And God, they do not know the blessings that can come when you have to suffer for your sake. And so, God, I pray that you would strengthen our American brothers and sisters in the absence of their persecution. I pray that you would strengthen them in the absence of their suffering. And that's a really interesting prayer, isn't it? Because here I thought that we were going to pray strength for them in the midst of their suffering. But they ended up praying strength for us in the absence of our suffering. And really the impression I got from our, our friends in India is that they really do believe that we are missing out on something in America 
because we do not suffer for our faith, because we are not persecuted for what we believe in. And that's not something we think about all that often, the, the benefits of persecution, the benefits of suffering. You know, that word suffer is, is almost like a four-letter word in the United States. In fact, I would argue that kind of one of the key, key criteria that people use in, in our country when they're making decisions is, what decision can I make that will lead to the least amount of suffering? And I think that translates into our faith. I mean, I won't ask for a show of hands here, but I can't imagine that there are many people in this room that you decided to become a Christian right after you heard a sermon on the ways that you may have to suffer for the sake of Christ. I can't imagine there are many people in this room that you became a Christian after you heard a sermon on the 70 million people, it is estimated, who have lost their lives over the past 2,000 years because of their allegiance to Jesus. That's not the sort of message that you hear at a Great Glory Harvest Crusade, right? We don't like this idea of suffering. But what I would like to submit to you here today is that our brothers and sisters in India are right. They're right. And there is something actually very tremendous that can happen in an individual's faith. There is something tremendous that can happen within a church. There is something tremendous that can happen within the entire movement of Christianity within a nation. When its members have to suffer for the sake of their faith. In fact... It's one of the things that made the early church the early church. It's one of the commitments that, that allowed them to grow. We're going to see today that the early church, one of the things that made them grow was this commitment that they had to be willing to suffer for Jesus' sake if that's what it took. And that's what we're going to see starting in Acts chapter 6 here in our Bible. I've brought you to this passage in Acts, and uh, you know, as I said, we've been in this series, Momentum which is all about the early church. It's all about how God took this group of 120, that's all that was committed to the Christian cause when it first started out, 120 people, and he grew it into tens of thousands of people within the span of 30 years. And if you've been with us in this series, you've probably observed that every single time that we have been together in this series, we have brought you to a passage in the book of Acts, and there's a reason for that. The book of Acts, in case you don't know, is a book in our Bible that tells the history of the early church. It tells the history of the first 30 years of Christianity. And as you read through the first several chapters of the book of Acts, which corresponds to the first several months in the history of the church, you'll notice something very interesting. What you'll notice is, contrary to what I think popular belief is, the first Christians, uh, in their first few months of existence, they actually did not face a lot of opposition to their message. There were some people who were opposed to it, definitely. But for the most part, the, the early Christians actually faced a lot of favor. And that's why Luke, the author of Acts, tells us that in the first several months of the church's history, daily hundreds, if not thousands of people began to give their life to Jesus Christ. The, the church grew exponentially in its first few months. It was no doubt a very exciting time to be a part of the church. But then one day something happened. Then one day something changed. Because something horrific happened. In Acts chapter 6, we are introduced to one of the early heroes of the Christian faith, a man by the name of Stephen, one of the early followers of Jesus. And Stephen is a unique individual in the Bible because Stephen was not one of the apostles. He wasn't one of the disciples of Jesus. But it's clear as you read through Acts chapter 6 that God was with Stephen in a very special way. He was with him in a very unique way. We're told in Acts chapter 6 that Stephen was full of God's grace. He was full of God's power. He actually performed miracles. So God was with him in a special way. And one day that we are told that Stephen finds himself in a Jewish synagogue somewhere. And a Jewish synagogue was, was just a Jewish church. 
And he finds somewhere himself somewhere in a Jewish synagogue somewhere in Jerusalem. And we're told that in the middle of this synagogue service, he's motivated by the Holy Spirit to stand up in the service and to begin talking about Jesus. To begin talking, trying to convince these Jewish people in the synagogue to put their faith in Jesus Christ. And as, as Stephen begins to talk about Jesus, he's met with something that, as I said, a lot of the Christians weren't met with. He, he's met with opposition. These Jewish people don't like this message that he is teaching. And in fact, we're told that they go, get so frustrated that they arrest Stephen. And they bring Stephen before the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish Supreme Court of that day. And we're told that they produce false witnesses against Stephen, who, who, who convince the Sanhedrin, who tell the Sanhedrin that Stephen has been preaching against God, and he's been preaching against the temple, and he's been preaching against the Mosaic law. Pick it up with me in verse 8 of Acts chapter 6, and you'll see all of this unfold. It says, Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, that's the temple, and change the customs that Moses handed down to us. So we hear, see here that these accusations against Stephen are that he's been preaching against the temple and he's been preaching against the Mosaic law. And you have to understand the temple and the Mosaic law, those were the two pillars of the Jewish faith at that time. That would be like someone coming into our church and starting to, to talk bad things against the Bible or against Jesus himself. So, so these were very serious charges. And so we're told that they bring these accusations against Stephen before the Sanhedrin. And as you read on in Acts chapter 7, you see that the Sanhedrin end up asking Stephen just one question. And that question is, Stephen, are these accusations true? Is what they are saying, is it true? And in response to that question, Stephen does something interesting. He actually does not answer the question directly. Instead, what Stephen does is he launches into what actually becomes the longest speech in the book of Acts. It's 53 verses long. It's basically all of, of Acts chapter 7. And in this speech, Stephen makes a few different points, but the point that sort of rises to the surface is Stephen makes it clear that if you go back all the way to the beginning of the Bible, if you go back all the way to Genesis, you will see that throughout history, there have always been people who have been opposed to what God is trying to do in this world. Throughout history, God has always been trying to do amazing things, and there have always been people who actually think that they're God's people who are opposed to what God is trying to do. And Stephen brings up two examples, Joseph in the book of Genesis and Moses starting in the book of Exodus. Joseph in the book of Genesis, Joseph was a man who God was clearly with. God was trying to do amazing things through Joseph, and yet what happened to Joseph? His brothers sold him into slavery. Here God was trying to do amazing things. God's people, seemingly God's people, were opposed to it. You look at Moses in the book of Exodus. Moses was a man who God was clearly with. God was trying to do amazing things through Moses. And yet at every single turn, the Israelites were opposing Moses and opposing God. And the point that Stephen is making is that from the very beginning of history, there have always been people who are opposed to what God is doing. And it's clear what Stephen is trying to say to this. He's trying to say in this, listen, right now God is trying to do amazing things. He's trying to get people to believe in his son Jesus Christ. And right now there are people opposed to it. And it's clear who Stephen is talking about. 
He's talking about the Sanhedrin, and he's talking about the members of the synagogue. Do me a favor and look with me at verse 51 of Acts chapter 7, okay? Acts chapter 7, verse 51. This is the climax of Stephen's speech. And this is what he says to the Sanhedrin, Acts 7, verse 51. He says, you stiff-necked people. You stiff-necked people. He says, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. That's Jesus. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. And here we see Stephen get very strong, right? It's, it's obvious Stephen has not read how to win friends and influence people. Because he's not going to win any friends through this particular speech. But there's a reason why Stephen is so strong. He doesn't want the Sanhedrin to make the same mistake as their ancestors. But the Sanhedrin will have nothing of this. Verse 54. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at them. So the Sanhedrin begin almost acting like animals, growling like dogs at Stephen. But Stephen does not back down, verse 55. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. So as the Sanhedrin are growling at Stephen, we're told that Stephen is given a vision that he shares with the Sanhedrin. He says, look, I see heaven open. I see the glory of God. And right at the right hand of God, I see the Son of Man. That's another name for Jesus. I see Jesus standing there. And you have to understand, that is what ultimately does Stephen in, him sharing this vision. The reason why is because the, the position at the right hand of a king in this day was a position of power and authority. And so for Stephen to say that he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God is to say that Jesus has been given a position of power and authority all over, over this entire world. And in the ears of the Sanhedrin, a group of people who don't believe Jesus is the Messiah, this would be blasphemy because this is claiming that Jesus is more than just a man, that he is like God himself. And so this would be blasphemy. And in the first century, in the Jewish religion, blasphemy was a crime that was punishable by death. And that's exactly what happens to Stephen. Pick it up here in verse 54. It says, when the members of the Sanhedrin heard this. Oh, no, sorry, verse 57. It says that this, they covered their ears. And covering their ears is what Jewish people would do when they thought they heard blasphemy. At this, they covered their ears. And yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him. They dragged him out of the city, and they began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were still stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And fell asleep there is another way to say that he died. And that's exactly what happens to Stephen. Because of this vision that he has of, of Jesus at the right hand of God, Stephen is stoned to death. And I don't know if you know this, but this makes Stephen hold a very unique place in Christian history. Because Stephen actually becomes the first person to die because of his faith in Jesus. Stephen becomes the first of what are now 70 million martyrs. Jesus becomes the first person to die because of allegiance, his allegiance to Jesus Christ. And as you read through the book of Acts, you see that this becomes a turning point in the history of the church. It becomes a watershed moment. Because we're told that after Stephen's death, a great persecution breaks out against the Christians. 
The, Jewish, the Christian people who were in Jerusalem at this time were told things get so tough that they're actually forced to leave Jerusalem. They, they settle in regions around Jerusalem. Those Christians who end up staying in Jerusalem were told that they're dragged from their houses and they're put into prison. And for the first time in the history of the church, it becomes dangerous to be a Christian. For the first time in the history of the church, it becomes dangerous to put your faith in Jesus Christ. And we look at this story, we look at Stephen's death, we look at the persecution that the early church faced, and there are probably a lot of questions that come to our mind. But the question at the forefront of my mind is why in the world would God allow this? Why would God allow this? One of the things I feel very strongly about our God, men and women, because I believe the Bible teaches it, is that our God is sovereign, our God is in control, our God is in charge, our God is all-powerful. And what that means in this situation is that if God wanted to, God could have saved Stephen. God could have protected Stephen from being killed. God could have protected this persecution, uh, stopped this persecution that the early church was experiencing, but he didn't do it. So why did God allow this? Well, let me tell you something about our God, okay? Let me tell you something about how our God operates. As you read through the Bible, there is one thing that becomes very clear about our God. And that is that our God never allows anything to happen on this earth that he cannot bring good out of. Our God never allows anything to happen on this earth that he cannot bring some sort of good out of. Good for his kingdom, good for his glory, good for the spread of the gospel, good for, for an individual Christian in their own faith, in their own character. God does not allow anything on this earth to happen that he cannot bring good out of. Our God has a remarkable ability to take the darkest of nights and to bring light out of it. Our God has a remarkable ability to take the ugliest, gnarliest piece of coal you have ever seen before and to turn it into the most stunning diamond that the world has ever seen. And that's exactly what God does in this situation. As I mentioned at the beginning of this message, the early church was growing exponentially in its first few days. Daily, hundreds if not thousands of people were being added to the church. But as you study the growth that the early church was experiencing in its first few months, you notice something very troubling. And the troubling thing is, is that the growth was entirely localized in one city. It was in Jerusalem. For the first maybe 18 months of the church's existence, all the Christians on this earth were found in one city and one city only. They were found in Jerusalem. Now that's a problem. Because if you remember the second week in this series, Matthew took you to a verse in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 where Jesus said that one day the gospel message would reach to the ends of the earth. One day people from every tongue and every tribe and every nation would know about the, the message of Jesus. Well, how in the world was that going to happen if Christianity never made it out of Jerusalem? How in the world was that going to happen if all the Christians on earth just stayed in this one city? How was the gospel message going to reach the ends of the earth? Well, the answer is found here in this story. As I said, as a result of this persecution, Jerusalem became too dangerous for most of the Christians. And so they had to leave. They spread out to other regions. They settled especially in the region of Judea and Samaria. And when these Christians got to these other regions, you know what they did there? You know what they did? Look at verse 4 of Acts chapter 8. It says, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Those who had been scattered because of this persecution preached the word wherever they went. Continue on into verse 5. It says, this early Christian by the name of Philip, he went down to a city in Samaria and he proclaimed the Messiah there. 
As these Christians settled in other regions, they didn't settle as refugees. They settled as missionaries, and they began to share Jesus with other people. In fact, it's interesting, the Greek word translated scattered in verse 4 is a Greek word, the same Greek word that is used when farmers would scatter seed on the ground. You see, the scattering of the early church because of their persecution led to the scattering of the seed of the gospel message. And that's why God allowed this, because God knew that he could bring good out of it. It was the death of Stephen and it was the persecution of the early church that led to the spread of the gospel. Quite literally, we are here today as Christians because Stephen died and because the church was persecuted. God knew that the persecution of the early church wouldn't weaken the church, it would actually strengthen the church. That's why God allowed it. God does did in this situation what God always does. He takes a horrible situation and he brings good out of it. And that's why I think our brothers and sisters in India prayed for us what they did. Because they have seen firsthand how God honestly seems to do his best work in the darkest of nights. They have seen that persecution in India has not led to the weakening of their church. It's actually led to the strengthening of their church. It's strengthened individual followers in their faith. It's motivated them to get out and share Jesus with more people. And they have seen that in the hands of God, persecution is not an enemy to be feared. It's actually a friend to be welcomed. Because they have seen as a result of their persecution, they have seen the goodness of God. They have seen the power of God. They have seen the glory of God, quite honestly, in ways that we don't see in America because we don't have to undergo the same thing they have seen the goodness the goodness of persecution because of the goodness of our God so what does that mean for us in 21st century America right how do we apply this to our lives today well honestly that's really hard to do Okay, you have to talk about it. You can't avoid it. There's no way you can talk about the growth of the early church and not talk about the persecution that they undergone, underwent. It was their commitment to persecution that allowed the early church to grow just as much as any other commitment that we have covered in this series. But this is the only commitment we're covering in this series that we don't have control over. We have control over whether or not we're going to preach the word of God here. We have control over whether or not we're going to seek the deep, authentic relationships that Matthew talked about last week. We don't have control over whether or not we're going to undergo persecution in our country. So so how do we apply this? Well, in some ways, honestly, men and women, in some ways, I see this as a message for the future. Uh, I see this as a message to tuck away in the back of your mind for when and if we ever have to undergo persecution and suffering in our own country. Uh, I know one of the greatest fears people have, and especially happens around, around election season. One of the greatest fear that, fears that Christians have is that we will, we will face a day where we get a politician or we get a government that is opposed to what we believe in and, and, and they, they make laws that actually make it illegal to believe what we believe and teach what we, we teach. And I think for some Christians, they think that the worst thing that can happen to the church is if something like that happens. And I want to let you know it's not the worst thing that can happen to the church. If it were the worst thing that could happen to the church, God would not allow it. And when and if we ever do face persecution in our nation, it may actually be something that God brings incredible good out of. In fact, it may actually be what God uses to win this nation back for Jesus because it will cause us to really take our faith seriously. It will cause us to get up off the couch and to share Jesus with other people. And it may be exactly what the church in America needs. And so in some ways, I I see this as a message for the future. 
that we don't need to fear this when and if it does happen because God is able to bring good out of it. But I don't just think this is a message for the future. I do think there is something that we can apply to our lives today. And it's when we look at this broader principle of the ability that God has to bring good out of anything. And the fact that God would not allow anything in this world that he could not bring good out of. You know, we, we don't suffer, we don't undergo persecution like uh, our brothers and sisters in India do, like those uh, first Christians did. But that doesn't mean that we don't have our fair share of difficulties. In fact, if you want to know my theory, my theory really is that Satan knows that he can't go after us Christians in America through persecution, and so he decides to go after us other ways to try and discourage us. I can't tell you how many times I've heard about Christians who first put their faith in Jesus, or they first begin to take their faith seriously, and, and, and all of a sudden their life just falls apart, their marriage turns sour, their finances fall apart, their health falls apart, and it happens so often now I'm not surprised by it anymore, I expect it. Of course, that's Satan, that's Satan trying to discourage us. And so we do go through our share of difficulties. And what I want to let us know today is that there is no difficulty that we are going through that God can't bring good out. That there's no lump of coal that we have received in this life that, that God can't turn into a diamond. Because our God has this ability to bring good out of everything. This past week, I was, um, I was doing premarital counseling for a couple in our church who's getting engaged in a few weeks. And whenever I, I meet with a couple that's, that's about ready to get married, they're getting married in a few weeks, they're already engaged. Whenever I, I meet with a couple that's about ready to get married, one of the things I always talk about is I always talk about uh, their future plans for kids. And, and the reason why is because I, I find that a lot of couples, you know, they say, well, we want to have kids, but we want to wait a couple of years. And what I try to get across to couples is that, you know, you, you can't plan when you're going to have kids like you can plan other things in life. You, you may try and wait a couple of years, and you may find out that once you start really trying, it takes you two or three years after that to get pregnant. And in order to get that point across, I, I tell the story of, of my wife and I and the difficulties that we had. You know, we got married in November of 2011. In February of that next year, completely unexpectedly, because we were trying to wait, completely unexpectedly, we found out we were pregnant. And so we start wrapping our minds around the idea that we're going to be parents much sooner than expected. And right as we wrap our minds around that idea, we find out that, the, that we lose that baby and we have a miscarriage. A few months later, we get pregnant again. We go in for a six or seven week ultrasound. We see a heartbeat. Everything looks good. A few days later, we go in for a follow-up ultrasound. We see no heartbeat. Find out we have our second miscarriage. We lose our second child. At this point, my wife and I are really serious now. We really do want to have kids soon. We want to be parents. And so we start trying and earnest. And then it takes us a full year, a full 13 months to get pregnant with our son Lucas. And that one we do carry to full term. And then when Lucas is a year old, we decide that we want to get pregnant again. We want to have another one. Almost immediately we get pregnant. But then we lose that one. And then it takes us a full 18 months, a full year and a half, to have our, our daughter Madison. And as I was relating this story to this couple, I was doing the math, and I don't think I had ever done it before, and I realized that my wife and I have been pregnant five times. Five times, and we have two kids. And over the course of the past five years, over the course of those past five pregnancies, there have been a lot of dark nights. There have been times when my wife and I have hugged each other and, and, and sat on the couch just crying 
because of the loss and because of the grief. And yet, I also see the good that God has brought out of it. Not only has God given us two children that I would not trade for the world, God has also given my wife an incredible ministry to women in this church who have suffered getting pregnant or suffered miscarriages themselves. I think of the emails I've received that when I share my story and some of you say, thank you, that has encouraged me, that has given me hope, that has strengthened my faith. Here God has taken this lump of coal and he has brought multiple beautiful diamonds out of it. I think of what happened in Vegas a couple of weeks ago. What happened in Vegas was evil, men and women. God was not behind what happened in Vegas. Satan was behind what happened in Vegas. But already I'm able to see the good that God is bringing out of it. I don't know if you've seen that, that video that's been making its way around YouTube. It's a guy who was at the concert, and, and, and he's being interviewed by a news station. And he says in this interview, he said, I walked into this concert agnostic. I've left this concert now believing in God. I think of the reports I heard at churches last weekend in Las Vegas, churches that were full. Think of that, churches in Sin City full now, because for the first time, people are beginning to seriously debate the serious issues of this life, like why am I here, what's my meaning, what's the purpose of this life? I think of what we did in this church last weekend. When was the last time you were in a church service where they had a picture of Las Vegas on the screen, and for five or six minutes, you got to pray for the city of Las Vegas? I've been going to church for 30 plus years. I've never done Done that before. And yet all over America, I know that there were churches last weekend, some Christians for the first time, they began to pray for the city of Las Vegas. Can you imagine what God can do with that? It would be just like God to start a revival in this nation in Las Vegas, right? It'd be just like him to do that. There is no moment of suffering, men and women. There is no difficult situation that God does not waste if we don't waste it ourselves. Now, I know this is a hard sell for some of you. In fact, I can imagine that for many of you, there there are two thoughts going through your mind. Chris, first of all, you have no idea what I'm going through. And then Chris, secondly, there is no way that God can bring good out of what I'm going through. And to the first point, you're right. I don't have any idea what you're going through. But to the second thought, I want to let you know that these are not my thoughts here. This is what God's word says. Romans 8, 28. God says the following. He says, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. And the key phrase in that verse for me is the phrase all things. You know what all things means in the original Greek? It means all things. In all things, God is able to work for the good of those who love him. This past week, I was remembering the first hospital visit I ever made as a pastor. Again, it was eight or nine years ago when I was interning at this church. And I went and I visited a man from this church who was dying of cancer. And when I got into his hospital room, uh, I was a nervous wreck because I saw how close to death he was. He was just a few days away at that point from dying. And I thought, what in the world do I say to a man like this? How can I comfort a man like this? And I think this man, I think he obviously could see the anxiousness on my face. Because he called me over to him and he held my hand. And in this loud, booming voice, which surprised me given how he looked, in this loud, booming voice, he said to me, he said, Pastor... He said, what are you so nervous about? He said, in a few days, I get to go see Jesus. This is going to work out for God's glory. What is there to be down about? 
And that guy schooled me, you know? He schooled me in that moment. And I realized in that moment, yes, even the worst thing that can happen to many of us, death itself, even, even death God has found a way to bring good out of. And you want to talk about having a witness for your faith? You want to talk about showing the world around us Jesus Christ? I believe one of the most powerful witnesses we have for our faith is how we endure through difficulty. There's a story of a, of a missionary who spent 20 plus years of his life trying to reach this remote village somewhere in South America for the sake of Christ. And for 20 years, daily, he dedicated himself to preaching the word, preaching the gospel message, serving alongside them, praying for them. And in 20 years, he did not see a single convert, did not see a single person give his life to Jesus. Well, finally, he got sick, and he died in the very village he dedicated so much of his life to. After he died, a missionary friend of his came in and took over. And in the first few months after this other missionary's death, uh, practically the entire village gave their life to Jesus. And this missionary was confused by it. And so he said to the tribes people, he said, listen, my friend was with you for 20 years. Why didn't any of you give your life to Jesus then? You know what they said? They said, we had to see how your friend faced death. To know whether or not what he taught was true. We had to see how your friend died. To know whether or not he really believed what he taught us. Can I ask you. What is the world learning about what you believe. As you go through your difficulties. Are they learning that you believe in a God who can do the impossible. Are they seeing that you believe in a God who can raise the dead? Are they seeing that you believe in a God who can bring good out of anything? What are they learning? Monday of this past week, my wife and I found ourselves in a very, very familiar place. We were at my wife's doctor's office. And the reason why is because a few weeks ago, um, actually on our vacation, we found out that we were, we were pregnant again. And so we scheduled a, a six or seven week ultrasound and so we went into the doctor's office and uh, met with the lead nurse there and she you know, started the ultrasound, got the image on the screen and as the image came up on the screen, I, I was looking at it and uh, immediately I could just tell there's just something not right. This is just some, I've seen a lot of these, there's just something that just doesn't look right. And so the, the nurse was kind of fiddling around with stuff and then and finally she broke her silence and she confirmed what I was thinking. She said, you know, there's something that just doesn't look right here. She says, I, I see what I think is a heartbeat, and, and we could definitely see something that looked like a heartbeat, but it just nothing else just looked right. And so she, she did some measurements and stuff, and she said, you know, if, 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 if all this is what I think it is, she said, uh, the baby is measuring about a week, a week and a half behind right now. And she said, that could mean one of two things. It could mean either your, your, your dates are off, which we don't think is very likely, um, or, or it could mean that there's something wrong with the baby. And she said, you know, we, we just can't tell anything now, and so I want to schedule a, a follow-up appointment in a week, and I want you to meet with the doctor, and he's going to use this high-definition ultrasound, and, and we'll see what's going on. And so we have an appointment actually this Tuesday to meet with the doctor. And so I stand before you right now in this kind of awkward in-between phase, right? No idea what we're going to see on Tuesday, whether we see a healthy baby or whether we find out we, we have our fourth, fourth uh, miscarriage. And five or six years ago, uh, I, I, would be a, I would be a wreck this weekend. I would be a mess this weekend. In fact, I'd, I'd probably barely be able to teach because I would be so anxious. 
But I stand before you now, and, and I can honestly say to you, uh, I have the most incredible sense of peace that I'm experiencing. And the reason why is because over the last four or five years, God has worked into me exactly what I'm teaching you right now. And that is that no matter what happens next week, God's going to bring good out of it. He's going to bring good out of it. Now, to tell you the truth, I think everything's going to be fine. I think we're going to see Tuesday, and we're going to see a healthy baby boy or girl, and we're going to carry the baby to full term, and in May or June of next year, we're going to have our, our third kid, and let me tell you, at that point, brothers and sisters, we are done, okay? <laughs> the wards are done at that point. I think that's going to happen. But even if it doesn't, I know God's going to bring good out of it. He's going to use it for his kingdom. He's going to use it for his glory. He's going to use it to strengthen my faith and my wife's faith and strengthen our character. And, and, and I just know God's going to bring good out of it. And so I stand here today with an incredible sense of peace. And can I tell you, it's an awesome feeling. And as a pastor... And as your pastor, I want all of you to be able to experience it as well. God never promised an easy life, men and women. If you are at this church because you think you're going to get the four or five steps to have an easy life, I'm afraid to say you're at the wrong church. Because we're never going to teach that here. God never promised an easy life. But what God did promise is he promised that he can bring good out of anything. And he did promise to give us the strength to get through whatever we're going through. And as I stand here right now, uh, it strikes me that there are some of you here today that especially need to be reminded of that. And you actually need to be prayed for in that direction. And so that's what we want to do. And so would all of you do me a favor right now? Would you bow your heads and would you close your eyes? And we're going to do something just a little bit different. But if you're listening to my words and you realize, you know what, I, I need prayer for God's strength. I'm going through a tough season. I need prayer for God's strength. I need to be reminded of the fact that God can bring good out of anything. Would you do me a favor? With everybody else's heads bowed and eyes closed, would you just stand up right where you are? Would you be so brave as to just stand up right where you are declaring yeah, I need, I need prayer for strength. I, I need a reminder that, that God's going to bring good out of this. Thank you. Thank you for those of you do, who are doing that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Anybody else? Thank you. Okay, I want everybody else to have their heads bowed, eyes closed still. Those of you who are standing, I, I want to pray for you. But, but I don't want you to just have to stand there by yourself because I know that can feel a little bit isolating. I, I want you to actually physically be reminded of the fact that God is with you in this moment. And so in just a second, um, I, I'm going to ask those who are around you to come around you and, and very gently just put their hand on your shoulder or back or something like that. But I know some of you may be made uncomfortable by that. So if you don't want that to happen, if you don't want someone to know you're going through a tough time or maybe for some reason you're made uncomfortable by someone putting their hand on your shoulder, just go ahead and sit down right now. Of course, I will still pray for you. 
but you can go ahead and just sit down right now. Okay, so I'm going to assume that everybody who's standing, you're okay with someone uh, uh, putting their hand on your shoulder or back. So uh, those of you who, whose heads are bowed right now or who are seated, if you could, uh, if you could uh, open your eyes now and, and look and see if there's someone standing next to you, near you, uh, who is standing, would you do me a favor? Would you just move out of your seat and just very gently, very lightly, just put your hand on their shoulder, put your hand on their back, something like that, put your hand on their arm. And as I pray right now over these people, uh, to, to, to get a sense of multiplying the prayers of God, I, I would ask that you very quietly, silently would, would pray for them as well, okay? So, so let's bow our heads right now in a word of prayer. And so, Father God, I, um, I pray for all of those uh, who stood in this service, God. And I know that for every single one of them, Lord, there is um, a pain and a hurt and a difficulty that they are going through, God, uh, that, that I don't know, and, and, and probably for many of them, uh, I can't even imagine. But Father, I, I know, I know uh, in the bottom of my heart, because your word says it, I know the truth that, uh, that your word proclaimed today. And so God, first of all, Father, I pray that you would give them strength right now in the name of Jesus, God. I pray, Father, that through the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, you, you would strengthen their, their, their innermost being, God. That you would let them know, Father, that you have not abandoned them or left them. That they would know that they are not going through this circumstance because they messed up or you're mad at them or disappointed in them or anything at all, Father. But God, that, that you are with them in this process. And Father, I, I pray that the, the hands physically on their back and shoulder God, they would sense is, is, is a picture of you, uh, Father, with them, comforting them, being with them in this moment, Father. And God, I pray that you would fill them with a supernatural sense of peace, Lord, that even as they sit in the uncertainty of, of how this situation may turn out, God, that you would fill them with this supernatural peace in the midst of this circumstance, the peace that surpasses all understanding, Lord. Uh, God, a peace that only comes from you and the knowledge that you were there. God, I, I know that you are with us at all times, Father, but, but your word seems to indicate that when we are hurting, when we go through tough times, you are with us in a very unique and special way. You, you if it can be said, are even nearer to us in those moments. And I pray that those people who, who have stood would, would remember that and recognize that in this time. So God, I pray for strength. And Father, I, I pray for hope, Lord. I know in the midst of, of a dark tunnel, it's, it's hard to understand how light can ever come, Father. But I believe so strongly, Lord, that there is no situation that can happen to us that you cannot bring good out of, Father. And so, God, I pray that you would give them that hope. That even if they can't see it right now, even if they can't make sense of it right now, God, that you are working this together for their good and for the good of your kingdom, God. And that there will be something amazing. There will be a diamond, Father, at the end of all of this. I pray that you would let them see that right now as we speak, you are forming that, God, within their lives and within their heart, Father. And so, God, I pray that if they walked into this place today with a sense of despair, Lord, I pray that they would leave today with an incredible sense of hope for what you're going to do, because you are the God who can bring good out of everything, Father. And God, I pray that this week you would surround them with friends, 
you would surround them with brothers and sisters in Christ who would continue to, to speak encouragement to them, Father, who would continue to lift them up in this time, who would weep when they weep, God, who would just stand alongside them, Lord, and give them the strength and encouragement that they need, that it would be the body of Christ that you call us to be. And Father, for all of us, we, we may not be going through a difficult circumstance now, but Father, we will one day. And I pray that the truths that we heard here today, you would allow to sink deep within us, that we would hold on to them, Father, and that we would, uh, we would call upon them, we would rely on them in times of, of, of difficulty in our own life. Father, you, you are good. I know sometimes in difficult circumstances it's hard to remember that, but God, you are good. And I pray, Father, that your goodness would become very real and, 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 and very, uh, the people standing here would become very aware of the goodness and the love that you have for each and every one of us. We love you, God. We love you because you first loved us. We love you, God. We thank you. And we ask all of this in your son's name. Amen.